The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness, superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another exciting episode of Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky, and joining me is my partner in crime, my co-host, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. And rejoining us as usual is the supervising producer, co-creator, and writer of the first two seasons of Gargoyles, the SLG and Dynamite comic books, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi, everyone. And we are pleased to introduce for the first time on the show, he was a PA on Gargoyles back in the day, Mr. Dave Whitten. Good to see everyone. Good to see you. So, um, Dave, we'd like to get to know our guests a little bit. Tell us a bit about yourself. And um, Jen, I believe you can jump in later at this point also, since you PA'd on a different animated series. But um, okay. tell us about your background, how you got into the business, and what it was like working as a PA on Gargoyle. You bet. So uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I went to film school in Boston, and then, like all good film school graduates, I headed out to the West Coast, and uh, a buddy of mine who was working at Disney, uh, her name was Laura, said, hey, we're starting up this new show. Um, do you need a job? And at the time I wrapped, I was a special effects PA on a feature film, uh, and I was newly out of work um, on the West Coast. I didn't know anyone else. And I, and I was a huge comic and toy and animation geek. And so I was, yeah, I was just like, whatever it'll take, I will take the job. And I interviewed with Frank Parr um, at the time. I don't think I had met Greg at that point, um, but I was hired as a art coordinator originally, um, which was basically a step below PA, if you can believe it, uh, where you're basically just Xeroxing a bunch of stuff. And then I, I basically played a PA role all the way through season one and season two, and then left uh, with the majority of the team for season three. And so um, I'm sure we'll, we'll dig into it a little bit more, but like just from a timeline perspective, it was one of my first jobs out of school and it was an absolute incredible experience that I remember super fondly. And I have a bunch of great stories I'm happy to share. Oh. Uh-oh. I was, I was immediately, I'm like, tell us something about Greg. Greg. Yes. Greg's like, what is this guy going to say? Right. <laughs> no, you should say whatever whatever you want. I am going to no, roll this. No worries on this side. All right. We all have our stories about Greg. That's okay. Yeah. Mostly Greg has stories about Greg, but okay. <laughs> That's true, too. Um, But... I mean, I, I can tell you in all seriousness, um, you know, you have you have those jobs where you sort of look back and you're like, wow, in hindsight, that was one of the best jobs I ever had. And that was definitely true for Gargoyles. Um, the thing that really made it sort of unique in hindsight for me personally, at least, was that 
you kind of had this mix of industry A players and like super young, hungry talent that were working really hard. And so like you'll hear horror stories about like the 90s animation industry, about like what it was like working at the sweatshop of Spumco or, you know, various places that had a bunch of dysfunction and no place is perfect, but it, it really felt in hindsight that the Gargoyles team specifically was this moment where we just had an absolute great mix of talent who were bringing their A game and um, just kind of knocked it out of the park. Um, Greg will agree, like the writing team was fantastic, but even like beyond that, we had the whole storyboard team from Batman the Animated Series. There were a bunch of young guys, Butch, Greg, uh, you know, um, Troy, who who all kind of came over as a pack. And those guys were just on fire. The visual designers, you know, from Greg Guler to Bob Klein to Frank Parr. But even like the background artists, Phil Kim and Ted Blackman. I mean, we had an incredible team that was sort of assembled for this just by sheer luck quite honestly i think in, in a lot of ways and even maybe lastly like if you looked at like the supporting staff of which i was one greg's assistant monique was fantastic like super buttoned up on top of everything like kept the trains running the casting and recording team was amazing at getting talent and and turning that stuff around um you know, the PA team of which I was a member, you know, we had Lisa Salmoni sort of managing all of us um, and Tanya Noblik, uh, Tom Panuski, myself were the three PAs. And it was just, everyone was working really hard. There wasn't a lot of drama. We had some incredible talent on this show. And while it was a ton of work and super stressful at times, like it was definitely one of those jobs in hindsight, you're, you're like, wow, that team really clicked and they just cranked it out. And uh, it was a really enjoyable experience. Well, that's great. But it, that I, that, you know, that's not the dirty laundry that you sort of advertised at the beginning. So, bait and switch. I was going to hold that for, I think we're talking about um, episode The Cage, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, we are. Yeah. I mean, that episode's a piece of crap. As far as. <laughs> And there's a lot of dirty laundry related to that, which I, I was waiting to share. <laughs> Specific to the yeah. good to know. All right. It's all it's all ep episodic. It's, it's centric for the episode. I, I have severe PTSD on this episode. When you told when you said you want to talk about that episode, I rewatched it on Disney Plus and was just like, oh my god, I remember this episode, and it was a bad one. But I'm happy to go into that. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> we don't often hear the words it was a bad one on this show, so this is going to be interesting. I think our listeners are going to love this <laughs> But um, I worked as a, a bit of a PA after I graduated film school for a few months when I was out there in L.A. I mean, mostly on some little indie live action sets, which are very different than animation, I am sure. Although the time mostly consisted of setting up lights, moving props and set pieces around, or going to the thrift store to pick up potential props. Sure. But that was a, about it. What is, um, and Jenny can talk, talk here also, what does being a PA on an animated series entail? 
Yeah. Um, well, I maybe your listeners know this. Maybe they don't. Um, in the 90s, the way cartoons got produced, especially specifically television cartoons, is it was a little bit like making a cake where you write the story in California, you record the talent, you storyboard out every scene, um, you time it out. So, you know, you figure out how many frames for a character to throw a punch or fly through the air or what have you. And then basically you have the artist do all the background designs and all the character designs and all the prop designs. And when you've got all that stuff, like here are the storyboards, here's what it sounds like, here are all the art assets, here's the script, um, and here's the exact timing. In that time, you basically package that whole thing up and then you shipped it overseas um, to either Korea or Japan or somewhere else or the Philippines. And you basically had the animation done overseas um, because as I think everyone knows, animation is super labor intensive. This was sort of pre-computer animation in a lot of ways. And um, the cost of labor is cheaper over there, right? And so if you use the cake analogy, it's like we sent the recipe and all the raw ingredients over to Korea and said, hey, bake us a cake and send it back to us in, in you know, six to eight weeks and we'll tell you if it tastes good or that type of thing. And so that's how things were kind of created back at, at that time. And so as the PA, you're basically like a like a project manager, right? Where you've got this giant schedule um, that's set out for like all the episodes and when they have to ship. Um, and basically it's your job to make sure like are all the elements in the box and has it gone out and has it gotten to Korea on the right date? And so, you know, the scripts, Greg ran a tight script room. He had a great team. They were, I mean, Greg might disagree, but like they were, it felt to me like the scripts were always on time and tight and good. Um, but then you had some variance, right, amongst the art teams. Like you might have a storyboard artist who's out sick for a couple of weeks, or, you know, you might have someone struggling with a particular background or, or what have you. And so that's where sort of the stress comes in is, you know, you basically you're on this master schedule. You got to get all these ingredients in a box and send over to Korea so they can bake the cake. And sometimes it's really kind of hard to do that. And um, so that, that was a little bit of what the experience like. It's, it's basically a glorified project manager, but Jen, I, I don't know if you would agree. Was that similar to your experience? Well, like the hardest thing I had to do was get cheeks to turn in his time card. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but I, I was kind of more on, um, they utilized me more on the, uh, post. the voice, but yeah, post I was like oh, gotcha. on the other end of it. So I didn't, uh, that whole like cake thing, first of all, amazing analogy. <laughs> <laughs> was already done by the time I like stepped in. So that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of gossip. Here we go, Greg. Oh boy, here it comes. Like specific to this episode, the cage and why one of the reasons I had PTSD. Um, I don't know if Greg will remember <laughs> this, but we 
season one was 13 episodes. And mm-hmm. so, yes, it was hard work. And, you know, yes, there was a big team. But season one was like, okay, we didn't know there was going to be a season two. And season one was like, okay, we've got 15 steps. And we're going to go step one to two to three to four to five. And it was basically one team kind of moving along. But when season two got greenlit, and I'm sure Greg remembers this, we had to scale up considerably, right? Because that we had to get a bunch of episodes done in the same amount of time. And so it's a little bit like to use the cake. Season one was like, okay, we're going to make one big delicious cake. And season two is like, we have to do 200 cakes. Um, and so the challenge there is in order to hit those deadlines, you have to significantly ramp up the production team. And so instead of one big team, we had three teams. Um, instead of having one to two overseas partners that would do the actual animation, we had to expand out to new partners in addition and new teams within those partners. And so season one, at least for me, from a production perspective, felt like the whole team was moving from step one to two to three to four, where season two was like, oh my God, I'm working on one of three teams. We're on step six. Those teams are on four and eight. And like trying to kind of well, and it's actually worse than that because even on your team, you're working on step eight on one episode, but you've got the next episode coming on and you're on right. one and two, steps one and two and three on that episode. So right. you've got everything going on at once. And then on top of that, you multiply that by the logistics of three teams and how you keep it all looking like it's one show and not three different shows or something like that. Totally. It's, I mean, it's just like you're spinning so many plates and one of the things, here we get to some gossip. One of the things that made it difficult was that freaking character, Dr. Severus. I don't know if you know this, Craig, but um, so as we had to scale up, originally a bunch of the character designs were done by one or two people. It was either like Bob Klein or it was either like Frank Parr, Bob Klein, or um, Greg Guler, right? Um, and those guys are all like amazing. Um, but as you scale up in season two, you know, you went from needing like 12 characters, I'm making this up, to we need 100 characters. And so in order to kind of scale up, you have to start um, distributing that work f- further out to more people um, in order to get it done. And so, Greg, I don't know if you remember this, but this is one of the PTSDs that came back to me is that we had hired a contractor, I'm not going to mention his name, to help out on the character design. Um, And he was an older gentleman um, who had worked on the original Scooby-Doo. And he was a really super sweet guy. And so as like the PA, which is basically the project manager, it's like, okay, here's a sheet. You got to get these 12 characters done. Go talk to this this guy who's new to the show that we're going to have him bang out a bunch of characters. And they could be like incidental characters, like cop number four, or, you know, they could get some more important characters like Dr. Severus. And so we had, we had given this new member of the team, Dr. Severus, this guy 
who I worked on Scooby-Doo. And he was a super sweet guy. Um, but unfortunately, like he was like super slow. And all his villains look like Scooby-Doo villains. And all his characters look like Scooby-Doo characters. Um, and so I like that style. Like it's cool. But it's not for this show. <laughs> it wasn't Cargargo, right? It was a different show. And Dr. Severus was one of those things where, like, we were on such a tight deadline. He had turned in the character designs of Dr. Severus, who looks like a Scooby-Doo villain. And because we had run out of time, we had to ship it as is. And though, I know Greg would approve all the designs or the vast majority of them. Frank, Frank and I would. Yeah. yeah, Frank, both you and Frank, exactly. And I remember like Dr. Severus, we had to, like I, I put him in the box and shipped him out because I was working with Dennis, who was one of the producers. And like, we had to get that box out. Like it was Friday at four and that was the deadline and FedEx was coming and Severus is going. And Frank saw it afterwards and had a fit. He was like, <laughs> this guy looks terrible. I can't believe he went out that way. He's too old looking, blah, 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 blah. Um, and that's why if you note, like in earlier episodes, Dr. Severus, he's got dark circles under his eyes and he's got like white stripes on the side of his head. And then in this episode, he's like 30 years younger. <laughs> well, but there's a story reason for that. See, there if is? you go back and look at Severus's first episode, he is posing intentionally as this older mad scientist type. And then at the very end of that episode, he walks in the door and he's taking, he's not using the cane. There's no limp. He's not hunchbacked anymore. His hair is not dyed gray and he's a much younger guy. So there were story reasons for that, but they, I, I, it may also very well be that, um, so it wouldn't have been for this episode. It wouldn't have been for the cage, but it would have been for uh, what was it, metamorphosis. Yes, I think. And uh, and in metamorphosis, it may be that Frank thought that the uh, that the whole design was way too cartoony, and, and we said, "Don't worry about it. Um, he's coming back." You know, we kill him off with the electric eels, which oh. I then <laughs> stole for Spectacular Spider-Man. And the origin of Electro, which they then stole for the movie Amazing Spider-Man 2. Um, and then, but that was a fake death. And so at the end of Metamorphosis, he walks in the door and he's the young guy. And that must have been what I'm guessing is, I don't actually remember this because you know, my brain's Swiss cheese. But what I'm guessing is is that Frank hated if, if there was a design he hated, he hated that old design, but it fit what the broad um, German accented thing that Tim Curry was doing for the beginning of Metamorphosis. And then when he walks in the door, you get the Frank Barr approved design of the younger uh, guy. Uh, and Tim's no longer doing the the ridiculous accent. Um, and Tim Curry, I mean, and, uh, um, and His buddy Tim, the character's yeah. still, he's one of our broader characters, period. But we we made hay out of it. We made it like, that Savarius is this big ham, this big sort of drama queen, that he likes to bring the drama to everything. It became sort of a signature of his. Um, but that may have come out of the fact 
that we had shipped a design for the majority of the episode Metamorphosis that is uh, that Frank didn't like. And so we were right. like yeah. retro justifying um, <laughs> what Savarius was in that last scene of Metamorphosis and that carried over into here. Then, of course, in this episode, Cage, Cage which we'll get to, I was really surprised having not seen it in years how many flashbacks there were not just in the previously on gargoyles but during the episode and of course in the flashbacks you got all these old designs from metamorphosis talon looks different maggie looks very different um and savarius is in his old sort of hollywood mad scientist makeup which in fact was just the bad design that we had shipped that frank didn't like um but we got stuff out of it. Even, even the stuff that was bad, we got story funny. stuff out of it. Funny. Greg, I don't know if you remember, speaking of character design, the mutants, it took, do you remember, the, it took forever to nail down the mutant design, or the mutate. Mutates, yeah. Mutates, sorry. Uh, design, like, we just couldn't for whatever, like sometimes like stuff, like usually everything was kind of flowing on the show and everyone sort of had a shared sensibility and it, like there was a lot to do, but it, it was moving along at a good clip. Things came to a screeching halt. I don't know if you remember on the mute. Yeah, I do. Like, no one could agree on what those things should look like. And here's a little fun fact. And I, I keep me honest on this, but I think this is true. We had hired Dennis Cowan, who's a comic book artist, one of the um, creators of the Milestone universe that DC had acquired. We had hired him on like a freelance basis to do some storyboards and a couple of shows. And um, I think it was his designs that finally pushed through on the mutates. Like he had done like a really nice illustration of creatures that, that look like Talon and Fang and whatnot. And they had to be sort of Greg Goolerized for the show. But I, I think it was Dennis Cowan from the Milestone universe who actually nailed the mutates. But we were kind of collectively stuck on those characters for a long time visually. Yeah, I, I think uh, I don't. I don't specifically remember that, though, it sounds right. Um uh, you know, Dennis and I go way back to our DC Comics days. Uh, I was an editor there, but uh, uh, but and yet I still don't specifically recall that. But what I definitely recall is that none of us were happy with the designs, particularly on Maggie and Talon. I think um, Claude Fang's adjustments between their first two episodes are much subtler. I think there were changes, but they're much subtler. But I definitely, I mean. And it's fascinating, um, not good television, but fascinating to um, look at the cage, which is full of these flashbacks of these characters with completely different models. I mean, the color scheme's the same, but completely different models. And we sort of, I mean, I remember Frank and I having this discussion where it's like, can we do this? And it's like, um, yeah, they were still mutating. <laughs> that, that they were still mutating so by the time they're still cooking the, they're still cooking yeah. the cake the wasn't done yet the, you see them in the cage now they finally stopped mutating but when we saw them in metamorphosis it was still mid mutate 
And that makes some sense for Talon because he had just gotten, um, you know, hit with the mutation formula or whatever. Doesn't make a lot of sense for Maggie when she's been a mutate for so much longer. But you know what? She was still mutating too. So, um, and I love the final designs that we see in this episode. Maggie has um, sort of shifted into a design that looks more cat-like and yet has an almost Egyptian goddess flavor to her. Mm. Um, And she's more, I mean, we changed the costuming because the costuming was like rags, you know, or like torn clothing in the, in metamorphosis. Now Xanatos has provided them with, you know, uh, appropriate clothing i guess but uh um but also just the physicality of the heads um it all all four characters look better again it's a subtler change for claw and fang uh than it is but talon is much better maggie's way better and um and you know it's the kind of thing where we're like okay not so Sorry, not sorry. You know, we didn't have that expression back then, but that's kind of, I'm sure what we were thinking, which is that, all right, we we just couldn't get designs that we loved for those characters in time. You know, at the, you know, when you're on a production treadmill, there comes a point where it's like Dave said, it's Friday, it's four, this is shipping. Yeah. Um, we got it as far as we could. And there were times when we lived with that. And there were times when Frank was like, I can't live with that. Or I was like that. And, um, and we just sort of uh, kept working on it when we could. And then for their next appearance, we upgraded. I mean, I remember another character, different episode. We haven't talked about this one yet. But one character that we, that I love the character. I love the voice work. I love the idea of the character. I even love the idea of the design. But I never felt we quite nailed it. it was Griff, the English gargoyle. Um, mm. he, there was always still too much of a foghorn leghorn element to that character that uh, that was like, we're so close. And yet there's got to be some way to make this just feel a little less cartoony and a little more like our show. And I just felt like we never quite got it. We never hit it. And I feel like that is one that we worked on. So when he appeared again, think in Pendragon was that it um yes uh we had made a slight adjustment but it was very subtle and it it still it never quite got there I felt it didn't uh not for lack of trying we just couldn't there was some essential that we never quite um nailed with him whereas at least with Maggie and Talon I felt like yeah we really didn't make it for their first appearance, but by their second appearance, I feel really good about how they look. And, and, uh, and like I said, they were still mutated. So it was good. It was fine. Everything's fine. That's fine. Greg, I, (laughs) I, Greg, just, I just want to go back on one quick thing, which I've forgotten about. I forgot that Severus goes from this like Germanic accent to like British high noble. Um, Was that intentional? I I can't remember. It was. I mean, we had this idea 
that this guy would be a little over the top and would play like a cliche. And then you'd find out in the tag, oh, this was all a con. This was, you know, we conned Derek from point A to point Z to get him to where we needed him to be. And um, I think, though, that the design problem Though it's not like we set out to create a design problem, but I think right. that the design problem, the interesting thing about it was that it um, it ended up playing into that. Um, you know, we wound up with the ability to uh, play into uh, what, particularly what Tim Curry was doing as the character under Jamie Thomason's direction. Yeah. Um, that again, you know, here's a design that's a little too scooby-doo a little too cartoony again it's not bad in and of itself it just doesn't fit our show very well um but then when you see him in the tag you're like oh i get it oh my fear was actually that the two designs were so different that people wouldn't and the voice was still tim curry but without the accent i wasn't i was a little nervous that people wouldn't realize wait that's the guy who we just killed with the electric eels he wasn't dead you know i was a I was actually a little concerned that people would, you know, put it together, put it together. Yeah. But the, everyone did. So I was worried for nothing. Can I, can I Dave? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I was just going to ask you, um, what are you doing now? What are you? Oh, uh, well, I'm happy to answer that. Can I get one other thing off you my go chair? for it? <laughs> We're having fun. <laughs> I want to let you guys go. <laughs> I know Greg remembers this, but when you have to scale up and make 200 cakes, you got to take on new partners, right? And mm -hmm. the other reason why I had PTSD remembering this this episode is this was an episode we were trying out a new partner that was, or a new team within a partner that was kind of new to the show and like still had some learning to do. And as you watch the show, like we used to do yeah, this. It's ugly. Well, it's... forget the visual for a second. Mm -hmm. The thing that I remember most is so the way you do a cartoon is you draw out the scenes and all the other stuff, and then you have these these folks called timers who basically will like look at a scene and they'll basically say like, okay, if they're throwing a quick punch, it's two point five seconds, and they would have these giant timing sheets and they would basically mark out for the animators overseas like draw this many frames for the fist to go from here to there right and it's it's a uh, it was it was incredible art in and of itself just kind of figuring out the timing and the timing crew and this wasn't unique to gargoyles but certainly true for gargoyles there were all older women in their like 60s who like chain smoked and at that time, we didn't <laughs> it's not entirely true. We had older it's men who chain smoked. <laughs> <laughs> but but well, the lead director was uh, Karen Peterson, and Karen she, Peterson. she who was wonderful, truly wonderful. great. But wonderful. yes, that she was. Um, I call, I say she was older, but I'm thinking now she's probably about was probably about how old you I probably am. Probably our age, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. It's really true. But she also chain smoked. Yeah. Not in the office, but she would be out on the 
Well, uh, not in my office anyway. <laughs> not, not in your office. The Disney studio had a smoking lounge and I was a smoker. Right, yeah. So we used to go in there and just rip butts and like the whole timing crew with the exception of Catherine would be in there just pounding butts and doing the timing sheets. The reason why I mentioned this is if you watch this episode, the timing is all screwed up. Like the characters have a lot of weird extra movements for no good reasons. When Talon storms into Xanatos's office, it, it, I mean, he he kind of struts in like he's wearing high heels. That's in my notes. <laughs> yeah, in the like, notes. <laughs> it's it's like the timing is all effed up on this thing, and I, I honestly think it was like. We, it sounds like you're blaming the cigarettes. <laughs> I might be. I, it was a new team. We were pounding this one out. This was kind of half done from a timing perspective. Got shipped in the box. And that was it for me. It was less about, there's some wonky animation there for sure. There's but, some very wonky animation in this one. But there's the some timing. Is there's really some decent good. still shots. There's decent still <laughs> shots. But the movement it lacks a lot to be desired. Yeah. <laughs> Another favorite moment of mine is Xanatos' color change in armor. The, at one point near the end, the uh, abdomen on his armor goes from black to the same red as the rest of the armor. Oh, it's a mess. I mean, there's one scene where, you know, someone's, I think it's, uh, there's an aerial battle where it completely switches from like Fang to Claw. Like the character completely yep. switches. Talent. Ta- right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, what the heck? But, um, but yeah, so this was this was an early episode for a new team of one of the partners, and they were still kind of ramping up. And you can tell they were still kind of learning on the job because we didn't send them picture-perfect timing sheets, and they struggled with it. And then the timing and the movements of the characters is like really just wonky. A lot of awkward. A lot of awkward stuff. Um but and, oh, two other little tidbits. Greg, can be honest. One, Maggie's voiced by Cass Susie, and in mm-hmm. the script, she says, "I'm from Ohio." I think. Um, and Cass, that's a part of the flashback from. Uh, oh, from the previous one. Cass right. Susie's from Ohio. Did you do that as like an Easter egg for Cass? No, I because I think when we wrote it, uh, we didn't know who was going to play it at first. It, it, you know, Kath was always our, uh, on the female side of our cast. She was our rock, you know, Yeah. who's going to do this. She's got to be play a, you know, a a young, you know, uh, girl in her early twenties. And then she's got to be a cat monster. Well, just have Kath do it. You know, (laughs) who's going to play the three weird sisters that have to have the same voice and yet to be distinguishable. We'll just have Kath do it. Um, who's going to play the Scottish prince? We'll just have Kath do it. Um, She's amazing. Without Kath, we would have been doomed on this show, without a doubt, um, which is true for me on almost every show I've ever done in my life, um, but particularly on Gargoyles. But I don't think when we wrote it, and for me, the line, I'm from Ohio, it's her plea of like, I'm normal. You people are weird. I'm normal. I'm from Ohio. Um it, it was that uh, kind of line for me uh, where it was her, it was part of her plea for normalcy. It's like even 
She's like, I'm not even from Manhattan. I'm not from this weird, funky New York City, you know, where you do this weird stuff. I came here to be an actress and, and, um, and it's all gone to hell. You know, um, I, I need to get back to Ohio, but I don't want to be a cat when I go back there. So, um, so that was the idea is that to me, it was funny. Um, and, uh, and, and, and telling. And then of course, you know, we get in there and Kath is like, I'm from Ohio. (laughs) And I'm like, well, then you can relate. Yes, Matt. Nice. One last question for you, Greg, the security guard who's got the weird surfer, Christopher Walken accent played by the guy. it's, It's Travolta. Oh, it's Travolta. It's Welcome Vinny. back, Cotter. It's from Welcome Back, Cotter. Vinny, it's Vinny is was based on Vinny Barbarino from Welcome Back, Cotter, and that was Jeff Bennett doing that voice. Right, that makes sense. So, Jim, we'll definitely Vinny get, yeah, we'll Vinny definitely gets increasingly important Vinny as later the show on. progresses. Yeah, that's funny. Okay, so Jen, just to wrap it up, I'm sure. Um, so worked on Gargoyles. It was great. Went to DreamWorks, also worked with Greg there. That was a lot of fun. Um, decided to have babies, uh, so we moved back east and then we worked at Hasbro, got into tech, and then um, now I am still working at a tech company, and I recently um, became the editor of Comic Shop News. So if, you, if you're a comic book reader and you go to comic book stores and you see the print newspaper been going for about 35 years the guys retired um and i'm now doing comic shop news so i had a really nice opportunity to interview greg recently about the dark ages which was super cool and i'm like so excited for the success of the comic books a because i love the properties and b it's nice seeing the fans kind of embrace it again seeing where the story goes so i love love seeing the old fans get excited mm -hmm. and watching the new fans go back and witness it all again. And it's amazing. I love it. It's cool. Been loving it. We're, I've been in nerd Nirvana for ever since this was announced. <laughs> all right. We, we've covered some of my notations already about the animation and other elephants in the room. So we can dive into the episode. So to speak, we meet a new character in the opening scene. She, she'd been referenced before, but this is the first time she's named also uh, Beth Maza. Right. Named I absolutely my wife. love I absolutely love how all... Yeah, Greg, repeat that. I don't think people heard that. Oh, named after my wife, Beth. Not so. (laughs) To me, that's so blaringly obvious, so I didn't even... Yeah, it's like, duh, but... (laughs) But not everyone knows my wife's name is Beth. Yes, exactly. I love just the design of the whole Maza family. I love how they all look so related except for you know Talon now but even you know like i i just like how they're all they mishmash to good together good yeah and you can tell this is a close-knit family i like seeing them all together i think this is the first time except for Talon, who's well he's out at the window but we've seen them all together where elisa wasn't in a hospital bed so it's nice to see them just shooting the breeze having a good time except for when Derek is brought up for obvious reasons, and um, some of these moments really humanize them as well. I mean, you can tell Peter's been doing that duck impression since they were kids, I bet. And uh, <laughs> um, I am fairly confident that that duck impression was Frank Welker. 
Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. And if I'm doing uh, Michael Horsa injustice, uh, I apologize to Michael, but um, I am, my memory is that, um, that in the booth, Frank, who's there of course to play Bronx, um, Frank is the one who does that little quack quack. Um, and we just put it in Peter Maz's mouth, but you're right. Peter Maz has clearly been doing that tech impression for a long time, but I don't think Michael horse had been doing Donald Duck for a long time. <laughs> I think that was Frank Welker, but I'm not a hundred percent sure of that. So I could be, I could be wrong. It's just, I have this vague, really vague memory of that. One thing I will hand to this episode, although I'm sure I don't remember, but I'm sure we had to work it to make it play this way. You know, oftentimes we say, oh, a character's in shadow. Um, so we're not supposed to be able to tell who it is. And then, you know, from the silhouette, you can instantly tell who it is. And on the one hand, you want characters whose silhouettes are unique, but that can cause a problem. So, for example, in our third episode of season one, we're seeing Demona in silhouette. And it's clearly Demona, obviously, because there's no one else who matches that silhouette. So it's obviously Demona, but the problem was is that we weren't really supposed to objectively know it was Demona that early in the show. It winds up working kind of, oh, Demona's around, but that wasn't the idea. The idea was, ooh, who's this shadowy figure? But the silhouette gave it away. Now, one thing I'll say is for this episode, for all the wonkiness and the designs and, and uh, the timing and the animation, and there are plenty of uh, problems is I was really watching it. I'm going, oh, you know, there is all there are all these scenes where we're supposed to think it's Talon and it's Goliath or vice versa, right? And in each of these scenes, you can't tell for sure. Um, it, it, it really struck me that somehow for a change on that issue, we managed to get it so that we were never, so that that ambiguity was preserved. And so in that first scene, Elisa assumes that it's Goliath that Beth saw until Goliath tells her, no, it wasn't me. And then it becomes that it's Talon, but there's nothing in the silhouette that we see so quickly. Now, obviously it helps that they both are winged uh, figures and, and Talon has fur and Goliath doesn't, but they both have the same kind of build, you know, the, the more animalistic leg shape, you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, that all helped, but there's no guarantee that we'll get that right, honestly, because we didn't so many times. And we, I really feel like, uh, unless I missed a shot while I was taking notes, uh, I really felt like every time here where we wanted to keep it ambiguous, it, it was ambiguous and it, it allowed the audience to it was wrong. It, it was, except for the... The, the growl. I think the growl yeah. g- gave it away that it was Goliath. But like it's if you like if you were just casually listening, watching it, then I don't think it would, you know, um, come across mm-hmm. like that. But us being obsessed the way we are, like I was like, oh, yeah, that's 100 percent. Goliath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I also like the scene on top of the clock tower where um, I got to say this. Also, this is the first time in the entire series this late in that we hear the name Eerie Building for Xanatos' building, which is why we've named this podcast that. I've actually, but funny thing is, a couple of times since we started this podcast, I 
people didn't recognize it because it's the name is seldom spoke. So I had to explain where it came from and maybe we should have named him some, something else like much to do about gargoyles, but no, nah, I still like our title. Yeah. It's I, yeah. Again, it's, it's us being immersed in, in the fandom for so long that we automatically know what the, what the building's called. So. Indeed. Just like some people may not recognize our opening narration, but if you read the SLG comics and dark ages, you'll know. <laughs> hmm. But uh, one of the things I like about this is the moral dilemmas that they have. Elisa talks about a lie by omission is still a lie. And then we find out that Goliath himself is practicing in that. And he, well, that's very, and like, he, very much the theme of this. I mean, Elisa does it. Goliath does it. Xanatos is doing it. Um, it's all a bunch of lies by omission. And the lies are like a cage. Do you get it? It's like a cage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's not just that empty cage at the very end. That <laughs> We're so subtle. <laughs> but what I like about this is they're doing it for different reasons. I mean, Goliath is doing this. I mean, he's not engaging in his best behavior in this episode, but he's doing it for a good reason out of his love for this woman. And uh, it's sweet, despite the fact that it involves a federal crime kidnapping. <laughs> Girls, find yourself a guy who will kidnap someone for you. <laughs> yes. No. I had or maybe don't. Maybe that's not yeah. advice. That's not, to not. Keep in mind, we're not actually lawyers, and, and uh, <laughs> don't don't. Uh... Greg, yeah, um, that bit near the end where you know it's sort of revealed Xantos is not helping out the mutants or mutates. Um, and he's in his Steel Clan suit. And then he throws out that quip, oh, Goliath, I didn't even see you there. <laughs> just like took a minute just to shove a knife in Goliath's room <laughs> there. Who wrote that? Was that was that yours? Or uh, you could just tell uh, you know, it's everyone fine. It, it, it's some combination of me, uh, Bryn Chandler-Reeves, uh, who um, was a story editor on that episode, and Lydia Morano, who was the writer. Um, I feel like that one might have been mine, but I also feel like it'd be very easy for me to take credit for someone else's work who's not here in the room with us. Um, so it, it is without a doubt, uh, all the, the, the Ohio line I know was mine. I know that one was mine, but, uh, this one might've been Lydia. It might've been Bryn. I think it was mine, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, but I know that that attitude we always wanted to maintain for Xanatos. We just wanted him to be so suave and so cool I'm and concerned. so funny mm-hmm. um, that that you that even though he's the bad guy and he's just done yet another horrible thing to Derek. I mean, he just said to Derek, um, "Look, Derek, I'd rather you'd stay in the dark, but I couldn't let you kill Savarius. You know, he's the scientist. You're just the experiment." you know what uh, a zing of a line that is that's you know i love uh, it and so he's just done this horrible stuff and yet and then he walks and i go oh glad didn't even notice you there um how can you not love santos i mean (laughs) it doesn't matter how horrible he's just so much fun that um that it's hard not to love him and so keeping that attitude for him um and again you know Brent and Lydia had been working on the show since season one. And so for us, that started to become for 
um, Michael Reeves, for Bryn, for Lydia, for me. Um, that was second nature to us. It was something that uh, Carrie Bates and Gary Sperling, you know, who were new to season two, had to jump on board with. But for the four of us who had been there from day one, I think that was, you know, we had Xanatos' voice pretty well locked in. Uh, and I feel like, and so much of that is Jonathan Frakes too. You know, you know, you know. Once you get Jonathan's voice in your head, he he becomes very easy to write for because that's Jonathan. He's just because fun. he's a suave bastard too. So. Right, exactly. So mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, it just becomes, and and that helps me writing the comic. Whether I'm writing for Maggie or writing for Xanatos or whoever, it's not hard because I just hear Casusi or I hear. Uh, breaks or I hear, you know, Rocky Carroll is Talon or, or whatever. Certainly Keith is Goliath and Sally is uh, Elisa. Those voices are in my head. It makes writing their dialogue. Um, that's the easy part of the job, honestly, because I just hear them in my head and, and I, I kind of know the kinds of things they'll be saying. Awesome. You should wor- worry about the voices in your head. Hearing voices is probably. Not I'm dependent on. I'm completely <laughs> dependent on the voices in my head. Please oh. keep talking to me, please. <laughs> nice, and I love how just how smooth Xanatos is in this. He tells Talon there's no need to be fighting with Goliath and Lisa. They're they're always welcome here. They're not the enemy. They're Even not the enemy. Yeah, and he knows exactly what he's doing. He's sending them against them even further. It is. Makes him look good. Yeah, it's the most fantastic gaslighting I've ever seen in fiction. (laughs) And Talon won't let it go. Like, he is determined to find, he is irrationally upset uh, and and wants to find a way to blame uh, the rest of the gargoyles and not Xanatos because then he would have been wrong all along. Right just didn't want he was not going to back down like there's, really there's even a in. point in this episode where Thanatos, still fooling him says so that potion that broke in the flashback we saw five minutes ago um and that you were angry at goliath because that uh potion you know shattered on the ground and and you thought that was the cure turns out that wasn't the cure at all and talon is but xantos still takes that twists it saying but i'm working on the cure with safarius right now and so talon's still angry at goliath even though goliath didn't you know the original thing he was angry about was that goliath knocked savarius over broke the vial and then savarius died now he knows Savarius never died that vial had no cure in it so in theory he should no longer be angry at goliath and yet at the end of that scene both because Xanatos is smoother than smooth, but also because, as you said, Jennifer, Derek is determined not to admit that he made a, a tremendous error by trusting Xanatos in the first place. He cannot admit to that. And that is then supported by Maggie and Claw, who are desperate for a cure. The irony is, is Talon isn't even desperate for a cure anymore. He's adjusted. And Fang flat out loves it. Right. Um, but Maggie, who Talon has fallen for, wants a cure. And that feeds in. 
if you don't believe that Xanatos is your answer, then there's no hope for a cure. But that comes into conflict for Talon when he just wants to murder Savarius. It's like, well, you can't murder Savarius. He's our shot at a cure. But you also, I love it. Elise is the one that codifies it. It's like, Goliath, what are you doing? Even if he created a potion, we can't trust that. It could be poison. You know, um, who would we even test it on? And and Goliath sort of realizes, uh, yeah, that's true. I, I hadn't really thought this through too well. Um, uh, and yet, you know, it still proceeds to the end where Maggie's prepared to drink poison. She'd rather drink poison than stay the way she is. And that's right. such a sad. But like, love fixes it. There's a much darker moment of this in Bad Guys, but we'll uh, get to that when we get to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like yeah, yeah, she's she's just really like, um, I, you just you got to feel for Maggie. Like it, she's just such a heartbreaking character. Yeah, I mean, one thing that was interesting to me is that I remember when we talked about this with Metamorphosis is that we had a lot of really strong female characters. So I felt okay letting Maggie not be strong. But what comes out of this episode is you're seeing actually she's built some strength. You know, um, she still lets herself get talked into betraying Hudson, but she feels bad about it. And, uh, and she's reasonable with Brooklyn, at least up to a point. Um, and she's trying to talk some sense in, she's not just hysterical. She's trying to talk sense into Talon. And then when it comes down until it comes down to that final moment, do I drink or do I not? Um, and so we, it was interesting to me that Maggie really grew from one episode and this is a transitional episode for her, obviously, but um, not just visually, I guess. Um, but. Uh, so when we see her again, she's become a much stronger character. She's still not a warrior. We didn't want to turn her into a warrior. Um, we have plenty of uh, warriors on this show. She didn't have to be one. But um, I, I'd sort of forgotten that she gained in, in strength across this episode, at least as compared to Metamorphosis. And that was interesting to me. Uh, I'd sort of forgotten about that. Mm. Oh, there were that that was great to watch. And um so was watching Brooklyn's maturation since the last one. Obviously, he's been named second command since then, and he's handling the Maggie situation much better this time than he did then. I think he has a better understanding of reality right now, even though he's still holding that torch at this point. And I love that moment where he lets them go because it is the right thing to do and they have to learn for themselves. We're not going to convince them otherwise. Yeah, they've made it very clear you're not going to convince, especially with Talon leading them. Nothing, not, that's not going to change until they figure it out on their own. And eventually they will figure it out on their own. Let's talk about oh, the new mutates. For one of the new mutates, let's say Fang and any discussion on Fang and Jim Belushi, who is great in the role, by the way, for Kingdom, because that's really a starring role. But 
Claw, in a lot of ways, is a really heartbreaking character. He hasn't spoken since the transformation, and I just love his design. Talk about uh, coming up with Claw and his uh, situation. Um, I think we thought, you know, in, in Metamorphosis, uh, Fang has one line, um, which we gave to Frakes, um, and just said, don't sound like Xanathus. <laughs> um, and uh, so now we cast Jim Belushi as Fang, and I think Jim is is so much fun in that role that, you know, when I was developing a new series, it's like, I've got to get Fang in it because I want Jim Belushi as a regular because he's just so uh, fun. Um, and this was the first time I'd worked with Jim on, on the cage. It was the first time. And, uh, but I think for, for Claw, he had no dialogue in um, Metamorphosis, and Fang only had one line. So the idea was that, okay, so we're in Metamorphosis, we really sort of explore only Maggie and Talon of the four mutates. We don't really have the time or space to explore the other two. And so how are we in, in almost no time going to delineate them at least between each other. And so Fang has one line about, hey, I like this body. So we have this idea that one of them would be really traumatized by this, even more so than Maggie. And one of them would be we, like, yeah. completely no, embrace I'm, it. I'm, yeah. Yeah, I mean this. This is this is cool. Um and so then you take that into this episode and you're just pushing those extremes in uh, in either direction. So Jim allows us as Fang to push even further into that. He's liking the power. He's liking being able to fly, being able to throw lightning bolts around, you know, uh, having very little responsibility. He still is in a stage where he wants to be part of this group because it would be scary to sort of go off on his own at this stage, but he's into it. And then for Claw, you're going in the other direction. And so, you know, there's this impulse. Who do we cast for Claw? Um, and on one level, I think I'd be lying if I didn't say there's an, obviously an economic in, impulse to not cast anybody because that saves us money. <laughs> um, and this was a big cast. You know, uh, most of our episodes were big cast, but this one certainly already was. And Lexington has no dialogue, for example, in this episode because. Um, we just couldn't afford one more guy. And, and my guess is, is that in the original script, I don't remember this specifically, but the odds are this happened all the time that, you know, if you have six gargoyles and um, one of them, by the time the script is done, only has one or two lines, you're like, do we need those? Can one we or two give lines? that line to someone else? Yeah, <laughs> this one's more of exposition. So could Brooklyn say it or Hudson say it? And this line's a Lex line, but if we would it, really hurt if we just cut it you know and so that happens um so the fact that claude didn't speak obviously there's an economic advantage to it but um i think we felt that there was a real poignancy to this mute character and someone who wasn't mute because hey their throat is messed up you know they're mute because they are so traumatized mm. that um they can't even speak and um and you know it also allows for jim to go 
do the what's the matter? Cat got your tongue. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, wait, don't you get it? Don't you get it? We're cats, <laughs> right? You know. So Jim, it allows Jim to take this obnoxiousness, which by the way, Jim is very good at. Um <laughs> to uh Jim is a sweet guy, but but performance-wise, he could take that, you know, it, you know, dial that up obnoxious up to eleven, right? And and so simultaneously you characterize both of them and Maggie too, because Maggie's trying to intercede between them. Um, and that really gave us something. So it's not only about us saving money. It's also about us saving money, but it's not only about us saving money. It really makes claw more interesting. If we had cast him and given him three or four lines in the show, which we certainly could have done because Frank is mostly only playing Bronx. So we could have had, Frank as a second voice for free play claw and uh, um, and giving him a few lines. But what would we have got out of that that had more meaning or feeling than than the trauma of him? It's much being more here? tragic. Yeah, just not talking. Agreed. We're hitting almost all our points early. It's great. I love some of these discussions. There is one moment that always stood out to me, though. It's a talent moment. We talked about how deeply he wants to believe Xanatos and uh, how deeply into it he is. He's lying to himself, just like he was in Metamorphosis. But for me, the low point on that, the real low point, is when he accuses Elisa of being in cahoots with them over this. It's like, dude, what the hell? That's borderline Demona-esque. Yeah, I mean, he's just... The truth is, is that the closer he gets to the realization that he was wrong, the more desperate he is to transfer blame elsewhere. Um, And so that, yeah, that is the low point. For me, the low point is the misspelled briefcase uh, um, uh, uh, in the episode, which Dave, Dave. That was totally my mistake. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Like that, that's part of the PA job is to like catch those mistakes. And I definitely dropped the ball on that one. 100%. But you know, I slightly, uh, slightly shifting. Um, Greg had mentioned I I'd interviewed Greg recently, and he, um, one point he had made was. You'll have to remember that Gargoyles was really kind of early in terms of highlighting inclusion and diversity. Um, Like not a lot of series were doing that back in the 90s when it came out. And you had mentioned um, seeing the broader family. That that was one thing that reminded me of like, oh, yeah, Lisa's got this multicultural family. Um, And even like the acceptance of Talon at the end it reminded me that Gargoyles very early on um, was very much about inclusion and diversity. And I've forgotten how strong it had made those points at a time where not many shows were making those points. And so good job, Greg. I, I've forgotten that. Those I, I really don't. I can't, I can't think of a show that was making those. <laughs> like, you know, I, you know. I mean, there were, there were shows where you'd have a team of, you know, five guys who put on suits or whatever. And one of them and would be one black. girl, <laughs> Yeah, one girl, one would be female, one would be black. And we weren't perfect. You know, I mean, 
took us together. They formed season and a a season and a half to get Angela in there, you know, but, uh, and I'm, I'm still ramping up from the choice we made way back when to start with six guys, six (laughs) survivors, uh, and then Demona, you know, (laughs) I I'm still trying to get, uh, more balance into the show in the comic. But, uh, but I do think we, uh, were ahead of our time a bit. And, and again, I've said this before, but the main reason for that was coming from me, but it wasn't out of any sense of altruism. And certainly it wasn't because I was a, a straight white male. (laughs) Um, it was because I was really bored with seeing just a bunch of white men on screen. I I was tired of it. I was sick of it. And I was just like, that's not the New York City I know. That's not what I want to do anymore. Um, Again, not out of altruism, but I just thought, we'll get way more story by bringing in different characters. And it was, it felt dumb not to be doing that. Um, And, but it was something that we had to pay attention to. Like, not just in big things like major characters like the Maza family, but even in terms of who are the people walking down the street? I was constantly saying they can't all be white guys walking down the street. Where are the women? Where are the people of color? I'm not sure I was using that terminology, but, but I was actively saying, let's get more ethnicities just in our ND characters walking around because you know, it, we didn't want it either to seem like Elisa was the only black person in New York, you know, because um, that didn't make any sense either. So it was a constant sort of there was such a uh, a channel. I don't mean on our show specifically. I mean, in animation as a whole, if not in live action, too, probably. But um, it was like, this is the route you take. This is, you know, it's like someone had dug through the dirt. This is the route you take. And I'm like, just dig over here a little bit, okay? And I'm, I, I do remember sort of constantly in the scripts and in the character design saying, this is great, but you've just drawn five white guys. Let's mix it up. Um, I'm going to, so I'm going to yell at Greg for a minute. So that is 100% <laughs> true. But what you have to remember is we're sending over the recipe overseas to be animated. And so... We would have like really good artists, you know, doing the main character designs. But when it came to like the storyboard artists would draw a scene of a, you know, like a street scene. And mm-hmm. there's a bunch of blobby people in the background. When you send that package overseas, you have to have a model sheet for each one of those blobs in that scene. So all those background characters that don't matter, <clears throat> you have to literally send a prop sheet for like every fire hydrant or a character sheet for every character and a lot of times it was the it was like me or tanya or tom rifling through the physical files we we had these giant manila folders and you're trying to get this thing out it's 3 30 you know on a thursday and you're like okay i've got all the main characters but this scene has six people in the way back so I'm just going to grab some random character designs from the files and shove them in the box. But we had a workflow where the packages had to get looked at by the producers, Greg and Frank, 
before they went out to just kind of literally stamp them before they went out. So there was a couple of times where like I was cranking and Greg, I apologize. I grabbed a bunch of white guys, not because they were white guys, but because they were clean model sheets that were easy to get to. And I didn't have anything else. And so I very distinctly remember you being like these background characters, like we need more diversity, which you were totally right. But as like the lowly PA, I was like, son of a bitch. <laughs> like, <laughs> like these are the model sheets I have. So now I got to go for like stop an artist and have them draw some new diverse. Background and like I both appreciate the detail, but it's funny. A lot of times it isn't because it's like, you know, we were pushing this like sexist agenda. It was just like, these were the clean model sheets that I could reach in time. And I got to get right. this box but, but all that's my point. In other words, we dug these channels because those are the clean model sheets. So they get used and they get reused and they get reused. And look, sometimes we profit from that. You know, we have all these really interesting characters at our disposal now because we reused Margot and Brendan or because we reused the jogger over and over because we reused the right. mom and dad and the two kids over and over, you know, they became actual characters for us. I started to pay attention to at least some of these background characters. I gave a few of them names, sometimes on the show, sometimes not, sometimes just in my notes, just so that I was consistent. Um, and that wound up paying up, paying off for us in a lot of ways. But it also creates this dilemma, which is that, yeah, we're rushed. We've dug a trough. We are going, the water flows easily down this trough, but we're never going to change. We're never going to improve if that's all we do is go down this trough. So, yeah, I'm the asshole uh, <laughs> who's going, I don't care, change it. Right. And, you know, often what that meant is you take the body of a guy that exists, but just change the head. You know, we don't need to redraw the whole body, just redraw the head. And then color will deal with it. Um, there are all sorts of tricks, but it's still about you've got to dig a new path. It, uh, you've got to have some options. You've got to, we can't just keep doing the same thing we've been doing for the last 20 years, going back to the 1970s in animation. We've got to start doing more shit. And, um, and that became a battle for me. Um, not just on gargoyles, but um, going forward on almost everything I've produced is just constantly reminding people they don't all have to be white. Yeah. It's okay if some are, they don't all have to be white. Oh, yeah. Um, I will say, just kind of related, um, I don't know if you, one of my most prized possessions is a model sheet of three miscellaneous Vikings that Greg, <laughs> that from Gargoyles that Greg Guler had done. And one of the, and I think, I don't, I don't know if we ever made it into an episode, but one is Don Cameron, the storyboard artist. One is um, Butch uh, Lukic, who who's a great storyboard artist. And I was the third Viking. So I have this model sheet that Greg had done. Just you as a Viking? That's awesome. Well, the three of us, just because we were <laughs> we were friendly with Greg and we just did it as a sweet little Easter egg. And like maybe we'll they... back, background of like 
an episode I, somewhere. I don't, I don't think those Vikings are Vikings. Or were they Scottish warriors? I'm sorry, not Vikings. Scottish warriors. That, that's, oh, yeah. I think they no, show I'm, up I'm in, sorry. I apologize. Scottish these warriors. Are, these are Constantine's guys. Yeah, I think they're coming. Actually, I think they're, they're background guys from episode one or two. You know, like at the very beginning, like Greg had done this early on. And oh, no, I think they're season two. I think they're Avalon guys. Avalon guy, I'm gonna find the model sheet and send it to you. And we need to see the model sheet. (laughs) Yes, please. (laughs) I'm so like the nerd in me was just like, yes, like super sweet of Greg. I've known Greg a long time, he's never put anything about me or in a show. So, you guys, you two, both of you two, just gotta ask. You're in a, the SLG comic. True. But that's, I, I get in is who I credit for that. I wrote the script. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think she captured my essence, though. Yes. She did. That laugh, that cackle, <laughs> which we've been hearing all night. <laughs> the, the, the scene that you talked about though, the scene of where the Mazas uh, have that reunion at the end of the episode and, yeah. and how accepting they are of Talon and everything. But for me, the sort of like laugh out loud thing in that scene is Goliath, like hiding behind a curtain, but peeking out like, okay, we're telling them about Talon and, and, but uh, we can't tell them about the gargoyles. That's, that would just weird them out. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Is that Elisa being Elisa and doing what Elisa does with them still at this point? I, I, you know, I had that thought and then I thought, uh, this was all part of a tier with revelations. So it might've been, I think the, I, the reason we did that there, because the next time we see Diane Maza, she knows, right. Um, the reason we did it there is we didn't know for sure that Revelations would air before uh, the cage, right? Oh. And so uh, obviously she wouldn't have told her parents about it um, before Revelations. You'd like to think that after Revelations, she loosens up a little. And not that she's telling everybody, of course, but you know she can tell important people in her life what's going on up to a point. Um and so I think that's what's going on there is that um, because those were within that tier, and we've talked about the tier system for season two before, um, we couldn't be sure which order within the tier those episodes would air. And so we had to protect ourselves from there. And yet, I guess we really were determined to have Goliath see this reunion. Like the easiest thing would have just, just don't not put him, him in there. the scene. You know? um, <laughs> but instead we like put him there, but he's, <laughs> from behind the curtain <laughs> no one sees him but, know, but, the, but, but these scenes are sweet I think this is also the first time Goliath says that Elisa is already a part of his clan I, the yeah. first time he said, says it in the series is that the first time she's ever heard this I don't know hmm. maybe it's still a very sweet moment and, and a lot of granted this is very different I probably shouldn't compare it with that but in ways, it's sort of like a coming out scene, Talon with his family there. I mean, he's afraid of what the reaction to what he is is going to be. And uh, 
Granted, mm. this was forced on him. It wasn't something he was way he was born, for example, but it's still a very sweet scene. Yeah, it's a very sweet scene. For sure. And I like how he then brings Maggie in. It's not just, hey, there's me. It's like, oh, but I really want you to meet her. It's like get to meet I'm the parents. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. I want you to meet my girlfriend. <laughs> That's they're cute. They are. Is there anything from this episode we haven't covered yet? I like Brooklyn's line, uh, where it's he's like, I'm not a man, I'm a gargoyle. I just uh, you know. Yeah. It's like uh to me that that's just I a have great no man little moment. Like it's it's very <laughs> like, to me it's the it's the whole uh Eowyn thing. No man can kill me. I'm not a man. Oh right. Right. <laughs> Dave, um, any more PTSD from this episode? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for letting us dig it dig it out of you again. I appreciate the therapy. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> no I mean, it was great, right? Like we we all had a great time. It was a really well run ship. This episode I did not have fond memories of for the, the spelling mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Freaking uh, <laughs> everything relates to Severe Grovey He looks like a Scooby Doo villain. His outfit is ridiculous, and I got yelled at for sending him overseas in the box uh, before Frank really got a chance to think about it. And so, aside from that, um, and the mutates took forever to land it. <clears throat> It was a fun one for sure. I, I was surprised at how quickly Hudson goes down in the attack. <laughs> like I always loved Hudson, and he complete he folds like a complete house of cards when the when the. <laughs> meeting up. But um, anyway, he let his guard down. Yeah, you're right. But no, man, it was a blast, and um, yeah, it was it was a it was a fun show to work on. There are a couple things I just wanted to sort of point out. Um, we talked a little about Vinny and uh, so Vinny sort of missing the kidnapping entirely, but then spotting the gargoyles on the security tape uh, or um, spying Goliath on the security tape and, and where that's going to lead for him is interesting. I really like Goliath's line um, to Savarius where he goes, get back to work before conditions really do get primitive. I'm like, that's uh, Goliath at his most, uh, uh, aggressive kind of uh dangerous thing because that's an act out which we hadn't done in a long time like you'll recall that at the beginning of season one we could do act outs where the threat seemed to be the gargoyle you know there are heroes but in the early episodes it's like they were so edgy and dangerous maybe they're the ones who are going to murder everybody you know it's just scary um but by the time you get midway into season two, it was pretty rare for us to use the gargoyles as the cliffhanger, like they're the threat. But we went out of act two with Goliath saying, you know, I've kidnapped you, get to work, uh, or I'm going medieval on your ass, Savarius, you know? Um, and of course, it's all dependent. I mean, I like the line, which I don't think was one of mine, it's probably Lydia's. Um, or Brins, but, uh, um, but, you know, it's all, Keith just puts it into that line in such a way that it's like, 
yeah, we can go out on that. That's scary. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I'm backing away slowly. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. so I thought that was great. Um, I also, you know, in hindsight, we felt like our cast was so big, we didn't want to have like, um, you know, Goliath invites the four mutates to join the clan. And they're like happy and shocked because we haven't exactly been nice to you guys. And um, look, everyone deserves a second chance, you know. And then Talon's like, um, no, I think I've got a clan of my own. So he's got his four around him. And and we've gone back down to this old cyberbiotics lab, you know, adjacent to the subway system. That would become the labyrinth as we go forward. Um, and that becomes the beginning of, of Talon sort of building his own little universe down there. And I thought that was great. That was a little bit of a Morlock ripoff from, um, X-Men, but, uh, uh, I still, I like that. But at the same time, that was also us going, we just can't have four more characters hanging around the clock tower. It's just too much. (laughs) We cannot do that. Recording booths are only so big. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, here in the uh, comics, I've really embraced the idea of like, I'm just going to increase the size of the clan. I don't give a damn, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, now I've got a clan of 14. And back then we were nervous about having more than six. Nice. That's it. That's all I had pretty much. It's funny how stuff like the recording budget or like the tight schedule will influence, you know, story decisions. You, you always forget about those elements. And right. it does. It do be that way. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything you would like to plug, Dave? Uh, no. The only Well, the only thing I'll say, uh, if you get a chance, if you're a comic book reader, check out Comic Shop News. Uh, we've completely refreshed it. We did a great interview with Greg Weissman on the Dark Ages, and it comes out weekly at Comic Shop. So thank you for the plug. Check it out at finer comic shops if they don't carry comic shop news um shun them okay okay we can do either that way too, works right? <laughs> or threaten them like goliath <laughs> <laughs> and, no, and and thank you for coming on this uh conversation yeah. was fantastic and we're gonna have to. I think we have to invite you back on for more PST, PTSD <laughs> sessions with other episodes. Sometimes we're worried about you now. Here's the therapy. I absolutely loved having you, Dave. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. So and I'll leave, and you guys will. And Greg normally would ask you if you want to plug anything, but these days you're just plugging the comic, and this is That's probably all plugging out in gargoyles and gargoyles dark ages. Mm. All right, yeah, right when now. When is this dropping? Quite, um, let's see. Now I have to do math, but um, yeah, I don't September. do math. September. This is dropping in September. I don't know exactly what's coming out by the time people hear this, but uh, um, certainly, uh, if you don't have the first six issues of Gargoyles or seven issues of Gargoyles and the first issue of Gargoyles Dark Ages, you should run out and get them. But there may be more out by the time this actually drops. There will be, we hope. <laughs> and I want to thank you all for coming on. Thank you all. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. And join us next time for The Price, because we're going in the actual order of the episodes, not the 
Disney Plus order. So the price, one of the best ones. Thank you for listening to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast, powered by the Spidey Dude Radio Network, located at spidey-dude.com. If you like this show, then please listen to Spectacular Radio, based on the Spectacular Spider-Man animated series, which features some familiar voices. You can also find these great podcasts, Clone Saga Chronicles, Make Mine Mayday, Amazing Spider-Man Classics, The Sal Buscema Podcast, and Books of X. All of this and more on the Spidey Dude Radio Network. And please follow us on Twitter at From Eerie. That's From E Y R I E. And join us on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash Spidey Dude Network for more exclusive content. Thank you. He's the scientist. You're just the experiment. Oh, hello, Goliath. Didn't even notice you there.